Good morning. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. The Word of God is so very practical. And this is a very practical text that we'll be in this morning. We'll be in verses 18 through 21. I'll give you a moment to find that and then I'll read that text. First Peter chapter 2, begin reading in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing or something favorable in God's eyes. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious or favorable thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Let's look back at verses 11 and 12, please, in our text. So, 1 Peter chapter, 11 and, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, you're not citizens here, you're exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage against your soul. Abstain from those temptations, those passions of the flesh. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What we're, reading, what we're looking at this morning, verses 18 and following, really goes back to verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 and 12, we basically have a, a command to be holy. Uh, we're, not, uh, we're not citizens of this earth. We're sojourners. We're exiles. And therefore, we should abstain from the passions of the flesh and our conduct should be godly among the Gentiles, that God might use that conduct to see some come to a saving knowledge of Christ, that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. So this text, what we're looking at this morning, looks back to verses 11 and 12. 11 and 12 introduces the fact that we as God's people should be holy. And that kind of life, a life that's holy, a life that impacts God, submits to government which we saw a few weeks ago. And a life that impacts God, a life that is holy, also submits to employers. You might, you might not think that your relationship to your boss is very important to God. It is. I was really hoping that um, Matt Harmon and Nate, and Nate would be here today because we have a boss uh, employee relationship there, and I was going to tease them a little bit, but they both knew this sermon was coming, and they got sick and aren't here. <laughs> God does care about your relationship to other employees and to your boss, regardless of the quality of your boss, as we'll see. Now, before we jump into this text, I want to answer a couple common questions related to this passage and others like it. First, some wonder why Jesus and the New Testament writers did not prohibit slavery. Why isn't there in this text, and there are other texts just like this text, one was just read by, by Kevin, uh, 
Why don't the biblical writers address slavery? Why don't they prohibit, preach against, write against slavery? That's a a legitimate question. Over half of the population of Rome and the other major cities in the empire at that time consisted of slaves. Over half the population of the city of Rome and the other large cities, half, were slaves. Why did not they denounce slavery in a culture so vexed by it, you might ask? Well, I'll give you three reasons why I think it's not something addressed in the New Testament. One, slavery in New Testament times was not like slavery practiced in our country. It's quite different. In New Testament times, slaves were often treated humanely. I'm not saying always, but often treated humanely, faring better than lower class free men. Uh, They had often... You know, they had food, housing, clothing, education, even, as we'll see. And those poor free men had not those opportunities. They often functioned, slaves often functioned as administrators in the Roman Empire and served as administrators to important people. They were like civil servants in their day. They served in religious temples. They served as maids, groundskeepers, children's caretakers, teachers. Often a, a teacher would be a slave paid to trained the children. Some served as fine craftsmen in artisans' shops, as doctors, as nurses, as musicians. Some functioned as business managers, money managers, lawyers. In each case, the master paid for the education of the slave. So he would look at a slave that he had. He owned the slave. The slave had no rights of his own. This was a master-slave situation. The master would look at this slave and and determine the skill set, maybe, of this this individual and then provide the training, pay for the education so that this slave would be my attorney or my doctor or train my children, teach my children. And in in many cases, slaves at this time enjoyed what they did, and they were proud of their status and their careers. Um, Often they were paid wages and could actually purchase their freedom. And sometimes they purchased their freedom but wanted to continue doing what they'd been doing because they loved what they were doing. Now, I'm not going to paint too rosy a picture. I don't mean to do that. It was still slavery. And it had its dark side, of course. A slave's legal status was that of a thing. Aristotle defined a slave as a living, as living property, as a living tool. Another Roman uh, writer called slaves articulate instruments, tools that could speak. A slave had no legal rights, no freedom, no choice of what to do, where to go, where to live. They were slaves. And the situation that a slave experienced had everything to do with the character, the quality of the master. If he was a good and kind master, their life could be very, very good. If not, it could be very bad and often short. So why didn't the New Testament writers address slavery? Number one, slavery wasn't quite the same as you might think in our country. In fact, in many ways, for many slaves, it was significantly better than the average person living, growing up in, living in Rome. 
Two, while it's true that Jesus and the New Testament writers did not condemn slavery, neither did they commend it or approve of it ever. And then three, let's remember that Jesus and the New Testament writers realized that the only thing that would change culture is what? What's the only thing that's going to change culture? That culture in Rome, this culture here. What's the only thing that's going to change culture? Anyone? No, not you. Christ. You want to change culture? The only thing that's going to change culture, the world, is individuals coming to a saving knowledge of Christ and then becoming uh, believers who love God and who now live a life that is ethical and honest and upright and so forth. And we've seen that in history, by the way. Whether we're talking Wilberforce in, in England or, or uh, things happening here in the States where Christianity uh, had an influence and brought about ultimately the, the demise of slavery. That's funny, that's my wife's phone. That's funny, isn't it? (laughs) Jesus and the apostles did not have as their goal, Jesus and the apostles did not have as their goal the changing of society or the moralizing of society. That's not what they were doing. What was their goal? The preaching of the gospel to see one person changed at a time. To minister not to the culture, but to the individuals. And as God changes individuals, that impacts culture. That impacts the world. They did not spend their time trying to change the world. They spent their time trying to change men and women one at a time, knowing that that would change the world. And indeed it did. And by the way, if Jesus and the apostles had spent a great amount of time... uh, Preaching against slavery, what would they not have been doing with their time? Preaching the gospel. So fewer would have come to Christ, ostensibly, fewer would have come to Christ if much of their energy and time is aimed at dealing with this issue or any such issue. The second question that some may have regarding this passage is whether it applies to us. Does this really apply to us? We're not slaves. It does. If Peter commanded Christian slaves who had no rights at all, if he commanded them to submit to and and show respect toward their, uh, their masters, certainly that applies to us, we too, as employees, as individuals working under and for someone or under a company, we too must obey the commands in this text. Submit to and show respect toward our bosses. We have, we enter voluntarily into our jobs. You can quit. You can leave. Uh, You can sometimes bargain with your employers. Salary and wages, you know, time and, uh, and, you know, when you work and shifts and all the rest of it. Whether you're working remotely half the time from home in your pajamas, if that's what you people do. Uh, or you have to dress up and actually go to work. Some of that stuff can be negotiated. Well, you can terminate your relationship anytime. If this text applied to them, it certainly applies to us folks. So what we see in this text this morning is simply this. Holy living means submission to our employers. Holy living means we're going to be submissive to our employers. Let's pray and we'll look at this text this morning. 
Thank you, Father, for how practical your word is. It addresses either specifically or uh, in general terms every life situation that we might face. We're thankful for this text that so pointedly addresses uh, how in Jesus' day and Paul's day, slaves should respond to their masters and how this applies to us today as those who are employed by others. Many of us have multiple people over us as bosses. And Father, help each one of us to strive to be holy, as we saw in verses 11 and 12, to strive to be holy, to abstain from the passions of, the, of our flesh, to conduct ourselves among uh, others in the workplace and alongside our bosses, to do that in such a way that is honorable, in such a way that you might use uh, our, our lives and our words to see some come to faith in Christ. Bless our time now, Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's note the command of verse 18. <clears throat> be uh, Servants, be subject to your masters. Now this is as strong as it looks. Okay, the, word, uh, the word translated, be subject to, uh, in verse 18, is, uh, is in the present tense, meaning it's a command that never wears out. This is a command for every moment of every day when you're at work. Uh, you can translate it, constantly submit yourself. Submit yourself consistently to your masters. Constantly, when you're at work, you are submitting yourselves uh, to those who are over you, to, to your bosses. And the word master here, by the way, is not a kind of a loose word. It's the word despotes. We get our word despot from it. And it means master. Someone who is your master. It speaks of someone who, who exercises absolute ownership and unlimited control over something. Now that, of course, is not the case for us. We don't have masters, of course, in that sense. But there is application for us. So the command to Christian slaves is clear. I think the application to us is clear as well. If, if you've placed yourself under the authority of someone else, for a period of hours, you have a job, and you start at this time and you end at this time, and there's a period of hours when you're under their authority, under, under their, their, their governance, you're responsible to, to, uh, to submit to them, to do what they ask you to do. Uh, if you serve someone in return for payment, you must submit to their direction. The only exception is if they ask you to do something that's contrary to Scripture. So if your boss demands you to do something, asks you to do something that's contrary to the word of God, you must say, in as respectful a way as possible, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Why? I'm a Christian. The Bible clearly prohibits me doing that, saying that, going there. I'm sorry, I can't do that. And you may risk your job to do that. That's okay. If it's risking your job or risking the favor and blessing of God, there's no choice here, right? Okay, digging in now. Number one, submission to employers should be accompanied by respect. Notice verse, eight, verse 18 again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. This addresses the attitude. A bare submission is not enough. Uh, bare uh, 
God never just cares about the stuff we're doing. He always cares about, he always demands us to have an attitude that pleases him as well. So bare submission is not enough. I'll do what he tells me, but inside I'm really ticked and I'm not submissive and, and I have no respect for him. I just, no. no. An attitude of respect is necessary. So with just a few questions then. Do you speak to your boss in a deferential way? When you speak to your boss, do you speak to him or her in a deferential way? In a way that communicates respect. How do you speak to your boss? Do you manifest respect for your boss in your demeanor and your actions? Do you listen to your boss's demands and then do something else? She wants me to do this. I'm not doing that. Do you complain about your boss to other people? In the workplace, your spouse, I can't wait to get home so I can unload about my stupid boss to my wife. Do you complain to your boss about your boss to others? Do you join in when others are roasting your boss? No doubt there's opportunity for that in many cases. We get together as employees at lunch or we get together maybe outside of work and we start talking about the boss and all the problems. Can you believe the dumb decisions our company is making? Can you believe the dumb things our boss is telling us to do? The command is clear. With all respect. Secondly, submission to employers has nothing to do with the quality of their character. Some of you might, might be thinking, Pastor Scott, my boss doesn't deserve submission or respect. You don't know my boss. You wouldn't say this if you knew my boss. He is so ungodly. He does not live a life worthy of respect. He is a jerk. My boss is a jerk. My boss is a fool. My boss, and we've all been in this situation, my boss doesn't have any idea what he's doing. Most of us on the floor, I've worked in factories and I've worked in different hubs, UPS hubs, I've done different things. I've worked in restaurants, I've done a bunch of junk and you've done all the same kind of stuff. And there are times when it might cross your thinking, this guy has no idea what he's doing. If I did it, we did it my way, things would just fly. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. You don't know my boss. He has no idea what he's doing. You don't know my boss. He treats people like dirt. He treats me like dirt. He doesn't care about anyone but himself. Is it my treatment of my boss tied to the kind of person he is or the kind of person she is? And the answer is no. How you treat, how you respond to your boss has nothing to do, according to this text, with their quality. Peter addresses this very question at the end of verse 18. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So he provides a best-case scenario and a worst-case scenario. Best-case scenario, good and gentle boss. Worst-case, unjust. These are really descriptive terms. Let me just kind of describe what they're saying here. The word good here is a very broad term referring to someone who is benevolent, someone who is kind, 
considerate in his character and disposition. This speaks mostly of who they are. This is a, this is a, a good person, kind and benevolent, considerate of other people. That's the kind of person we're talking about. The word gentle speaks of, of more their dealings. They're mild and fair and sweet-tempered in their dealings. So this boss is, is a nice boss, a good boss. A boss with some, with some positive character. I mean, some real character. And they treat people well. He or she treats people with, with some, some mildness and fairness. That's the boss we all want. Hopefully, if you're a boss, that's the kind of boss you are. That other term, the worst case scenario, unjust. This word literally means crooked or bent. It's the Greek word skalios. You may know of the medical condition scoliosis, which is the curvature of the spine. This word scolias means crooked or bent, uh, perverted, dishonest. You may have a boss who is crooked, who is perverse, who is a liar, who is a cheat, who is unethical, who couldn't care less about people. That may be your boss. And folks, the bottom line is, how you respond to and treat your boss should have nothing to do with how competent they are, uh, uh, how they treat you, how honest, ethical, truthful, or respectable they are. has nothing to do with that. How you treat your boss has nothing to do with, with their quality. Might be the worst boss in the world. You certainly can look for another job. But if you've got the worst boss in the world, you don't have the freedom of of dissing him, of showing disrespect toward him, being disrespectful toward him with others, and you don't have the option of doing what you want instead of what he or she wants. If your boss is good, fair, kind, honest, thank God for him every day. And submit to him. And show respect to him. And minister the gospel to him. He might be a good person, but he still needs Christ. And if your boss is crooked and dishonest, is a liar and a cheat, and treats you and everyone else poorly, thank God for your job. Submit to your boss. Show him respect. And ask God to help you have an impact on him. Minister to him. Allow him and everyone else in the place that you work to see you addressing him, treating him differently than maybe everyone else treats him. Unsaved people, uh, when, they're, when an ungodly person is over them and mis, an ungodly person mistreats them, they respond. How do they often respond? You should be responding probably just the exact opposite. Thirdly, submission to employers flows from a commitment to God or should flow from a commitment to God. You might ask the question, why do I have to do all this? Verse 8, why do I have to submit to my boss? Why do I have to show respect to my boss if they're unjust? What's the reason for this? Well, he answers that now in verses 19 and 20. So I want you to look at verses 18 and 19 
Again, just look right at your Bibles. Don't look at me, don't look at anything else. Look right at your Bibles, because I'm just going to kind of walk you through it and give you a sense or the flow of verses 18 and 19. Because <clears throat> it's a little, the grammar is a little challenging. Okay, verse 18. <clears throat> Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, Peter's going to focus, just keep your eyes there. Peter's now going to focus specifically on those with unjust masters. So, why should we submit to and respect unjust bosses? He's going to deal with the worst case scenario. So now he does. Here's why. Verse 19. For, because, because, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God... One, or we, endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. So keep looking at verse 19. For because this is a gracious thing, that the, 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 the word translated gracious thing is our, the standard New Testament term charis, which is uh, unmerited favor by grace are you saved through faith. Uh, a theological term that has so much to it. Here... It speaks of, I think, favor. I would have translated this differently. I would have translated, for because this is favorable to God. That's the idea. This is favorable in the eyes of God. This is the thing that God commends. In fact, look at the middle of verse 20. Look at the middle of verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing, same exact term, same phraseology. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's, I think, the idea here. So, verse 19 again. Why should we show, submit to and show respect to even ungodly bosses? Because this is a favorable thing in the eyes of God when we, mindful of God... Endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. So here's the point now. You can look up now. Here's the point. The point is, um, God is pleased. He approves of us when we are conscious of him as we endure trials related to an ungodly boss. It's not just endure trials. Just make yourself do it. That's not pleasing to God. It's when we are contemplating God, when we're conscious of God, and when we do what we're doing regarding our boss in a way that pleases God, that's what he approves of. When you work for an ungodly employer, be mindful of God and what he expects of you. Be committed to God in how you treat your boss. Then God will be pleased. So that's the why. Why should I do this? Because this is an opportunity for me to please God when I am contemplating Him, mindful of Him, pleasing Him in my relationship to an ungodly boss. It's always, it's always all about pleasing God, folks. And that's what this is about. We spend 30 to 50 hours a week Working for a living. Now, some of you might spend a little more here and there. You get overtime. If you're a tax guy right now, you're spending about 90 hours a week at work, right? So that's fluctuating. But 30 to 50 hours a week, that's a big chunk of our lives. Do you want God to be pleased with you during those hours? You get up in the morning, you eat your Cheerios, you go to work. And you're there a long time. You want God to be pleased with you during those hours when you're under others 
If so, among other things, you need to submit to and show respect towards your boss regardless of his character. And then God will be pleased. There will be favorable in his eyes. Folks, remember, God is omnipresent and omniscient. He's always everywhere at the same time. There's no place he's not. He's here. All, 100% of God's right here. 100% of God is in the fellowship hall. 100% of God is in the glove compartment of your car. 100% of God is in your living room. All of God is in every closet in your house. It's not that God, a chunk of him is here and a chunk of him is there. He is always everywhere at the same time. God is omnipresent. There's never a moment that we do anything that he is not all of his attention focused right here and his presence isn't all right here. And, there, and also he knows everything. Not just my actions, but my, my thoughts. He knows it all. And for that period of time when you're at work, he sees it all. He hears it all. He's, he's right there. And he understands what you're thinking, what, what's going on. Being conscious of that, we should endure every injustice, including mistreatment from crooked bosses, in a way that is mindful of him. Because he's not missing any of it. He's in a front row seat to everything that I'm doing and saying and thinking. Remember, folks, it is not the quality of your boss that determines your actions and attitudes. It's the quality of your commitment to God. It's not the quality of your boss. It's the quality of your commitment to God. When you're mindful of him and you deal with people, including your boss, in a way that pleases him, he's honored by that. That's something he favors. Now, talking a little more about this commitment to God, two things. This kind of commitment recognizes our Christian calling. Look at verse 21. For to this you've, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. To this you've been called. In verse 21, I think Peter broadens a little bit from the, the topic of suffering in the workplace, suffering under a, uh, an unjust boss. I think he's broadening to suffering in general. So when he says, for this you've been called, he's speaking of suffering. You've been called to suffer. If you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus Christ, you've been called to suffer. Pleasing God in our suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. It's a part of the Christian package. When we trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, we invited a life of, of trial, difficulty, and suffering for him and his cause. When you trusted Christ, you invited that. Because now you're following someone who was crucified. Someone who suffered and died. And his followers throughout history have been those who suffered and died. Now even though general suffering is being addressed here, let's not miss the point. We, we dare not lose sight of the fact that this general suffering we've been called to includes suffering at the hands of hard bosses. Because there can be some suffering. If you've got an unjust boss, if you've got a hard boss, if you've got a, 
lying, cheating, unethical boss, there could be some suffering there. Folks, if that's your situation, there's a sense in which you've been called to that situation. God has either allowed it for his glory, or he's actually set you there, put you in that situation. One way or the other, in God's sovereign plan, that's your job, that's your boss, or those are your bosses, and if they're ungodly bosses, you were put there by God for a reason. You've been called to this. Now, you have the opportunity to quit that job and look for another, certainly. But as long as you're there, God's put you there. There's a reason that you're there. You have an opportunity, a God-given opportunity to, to please God and to shine for Him in that situation. As I said, if you do that, if you please God and shine for Him in that situation, you'll be doing often the exact opposite of what others are doing, which makes your shining much, uh, even more visible. Also, this kind of commitment remembers and follows the example of our Savior. Verse 21 again. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. When you suffer for the glory of God, you're following Christ. When you're in the workplace and you're mistreated by your boss, or bosses, or company, or whatever it is, and you submit, and you respect. You're doing exactly what Jesus would do if he had your job. You're following in his footsteps. You're doing exactly what Christ would do in that same situation. And isn't that what we want to do? Just what Christ would do. Now we're going to dig into these verses a little further at a, another time. But just to wind up what we've just looked at. Some of us work in favorable situations for good bosses. Some of us do. Others do not. Over my life, I've worked at multiple places and had different types of bosses, different quality of character. Many of us, some of the younger uh, younger of us have not worked for many bosses. Many of us have worked for multiple bosses over time, and we look back and we can just peg. Good boss, good boss, eh, not the best boss in the world. Evil boss, good boss, and you can do that. So some of us are in favorable situations now, and some of us are not. Regardless of your situation. You have the opportunity to please God, and shine for Christ in the workplace. Don't waste that opportunity. If you've got a great boss, wonderful. Thank God for him. Submit to him, respect him, give him the gospel. If you have an ungodly boss, thank God for your, your job. Respect, submit to your boss, and pray for his soul, and try and minister the gospel to him. People are watching. Our bosses are watching. Other employees are watching. Other people kind of connected to the place you work 
are maybe watching, and God certainly is watching everything I do and say and every thought in my head. How are you going to treat other people? How are you going to treat your boss? Your character, your Christian character, your commitment to God will determine how you treat those over you. Thank you, Father, for this clear text. Probably every one of us has been in a situation where someone over us, who has authority over us, under whom we've, we've placed ourselves, that person's been of maybe poor character. And some of us look back and we, we have to kind of cringe at how we treated them in return. And Father, I pray from this moment forward we would each strive to be holy in our places of work. To number one, show, uh, be submissive toward and then show respect to those who are over us. And that may not be one boss, that may be a myriad of bosses. Help us, Father, to, to strive to please you in how we respond to situations in the workplace. We want you to be lifted up. We want people to see a difference. We want the gospel to have an opportunity in the lives of others. And we spend so much time at work in, in a work situation. There are so many opportunities. Father, let us not waste any of those opportunities. We thank you for our Savior who we love. Amen.